You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. I am your host, Rhonda. And today's topic, we are going to talk about black slave owners. Okay. Uh, So again, this is not any information that I am the first to bring up. Um, Not by any means, but I did run across um, a university article or thesis regarding the issue of black slave owners. Uh, So I do want to give a shout out to Brother Kui Mayo, who also brought out this information, and the Brother uh, Top Cats. So check out their YouTube channels as well. They dig into this information very deep also. Okay, so let's get into it. Uh, let me get use a little bit of technology here. Okay, so uh, this is a thesis on free black owners of slaves. Okay, so they are doing a revision or reprisal of the Woodson thesis, which I learned something new on Woodson talking on this issue. And the author of this particular thesis is R. Halliburton Jr., Hmm. which that Halliburton name, uh, we found the an, an early uh, family crest of that Halliburton name, and it is a melanated family crest. So I kind of chuckled when I saw the author's name. Not sure if they understand um, the origins of that particular name, of their surname, rather. Okay, so the source is the South Carolina Historical Magazine in 1975, volume 76, number three. Okay, and the um, pages that focused uh, for the source of this particular thesis is 129 through 142. Okay, so um, let me make sure that you all can see my screen. Yep, you can see my screen. All right, so. Free Black Owners of Slaves, a reprisal of Woodson Thesis by R. Halliburton Jr. Carter G. Woodson founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915. John Hope Franklin had described that accomplishment as launching the era of the new Negro history. Franklin wrote further, Dr. Woodson and his associates went about the task of of exploiting the myths of Negro history and putting the Negro in his rightful place in the history of this country. So I find this very, very interesting. I did not know that Dr. Woodson was setting out to do that. And I, I find it interesting because I think today... That is what we're seeing with um, 
a small percentage of people. Okay. So, um, you know, and, and I'll put myself in that category also, uh, although on a small scale, but I would put Kui Mayo in that category. I would put legendary, uh, top cats in that, uh, category. I would also put, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Tracy McCarthy in that category also. Okay. So, um, looking into the original narrative of what they're calling Negro history. So this is interesting. I did not know that about Carter G. Woodson, but let's continue. It is indeed true that Woodson exposed many myths about black history. However, he may have also be the creator of a myth. Okay. So this is going to be interesting, fam. Undergraduate history students are usually amazed to learn of the large number of free blacks in the antebellum period. So let's start with, they never mentioned that in my undergrad studies about the large number of free blacks, meaning not being slaves. They did not teach that in my undergrad study and I actually took a black history class in undergrad. They, they didn't teach that. It is being taught the opposite. But let's continue. <laughs> Graduate students are often surprised to learn that some of these free blacks own slaves. Okay, so in my graduate studies, little time that I did do till I'm like, no, I'm not doing this because they had the audacity to ask me to pretty much teach a class. I'm like, well, why am I going to teach a class, teach everybody else how to do the class and I have to pay for the class? No, I'm not giving y'all no money, period. I'll do my graduate studies on my own. Okay. So I am inclined to say that even graduate students are not getting the information that there were free blacks, okay? Because this information is date kept in the university, at the university level, and at the uh, school system level, real history is gatekept. So it does not matter how high of an education you get, you have to learn this information on your own. The only exception I can see is if you are going for your PhD, then you may come up with your own, well, you know what? Dissertation. And meaning your dissertation, you have to have deep research and you have to prove your research. Okay, and usually with thesis, you're coming up with something totally new. So I could literally only see once you get to that PhD level 
folks starting to dig in this information. That is when you're going through the organized school or slash education system. Because we have to remember who set up the system and why they set it up. The system was not set up to educate you. The system was set up to indoctrinate you into being able to successfully navigate through the said systems. Okay, so meaning economic political, and even social to a certain degree. Now, what I will say is that a lot of this hidden information, the what they're calling the top universities, uh, the Harvard and the Yales and such, or the Ivy Leagues, they have this hidden history in their archives. Okay? And some of it they do allow the public to get access to. Uh, some of it you cannot get access to unless you are a student or professor. So really the real knowledge of the hidden history, if you're going to run across it, you're either going to be at that PhD level or graduate student level where you can get access to the hidden history or you're just going to be a researcher, period, okay? Such as myself doing it outside of any of their systems on your own time in your own dime, okay? So each one that's doing it individually on our own time, trust and believe it's also our own dime, because we have to pay for the books. We have to pay for subscriptions to get to this information. Okay. All right. So just putting it out there. Okay. So history professors are frequently skeptical when they hear the number of free black slave owners and the number of slaves they owned. Uh, that would make sense that they're skeptical because they were taught in a system that didn't want them to know that information. Indeed, in 1905, Booker T. Washington wrote, my own personal recollections bring no case in mind of free black men owning slaves, nor am I able to refer you to any books making reference to this phase of slavery in case it did exist. Oh, so you say Booker T. Washington. Well, they're going to provide receipts like all others independent researchers that speak on this topic of blacks owning slaves, bring them receipts. But yet you're going to try to sit up and tell us, tell us Booker T. Washington in 1905 because you lived in the post period of slavery. You don't recall none of that. But Woodson says he recalls, but you don't recall it, uh, Booker T. Washington. Uh, that would make you a gatekeeper, sir. Booker T. Washington, sir, that would make you a gatekeeper. But let's continue. 
Yet, as one, yet, at one time or another, free blacks owned slaves in each of the 13 original states and later in every state that had slavery. So, again, and I have to rub this in because I want us to understand, overstand, and understand the education system and the gatekeeping that is involved. So anything that goes outside of the official historical narrative that they want taught, they put before the public their scholars, quote, quote, slash gatekeepers to debunk the said researchers with the receipts saying, here's what really happened. Because after all of Booker T. Washington claiming and allegedly saying he don't remember none of that, the gentleman that is doing his thesis says, yet at one time or another, free blacks own slaves in each of the 13 original states and later in every state that had slavery. So we're going to get into the receipts of blacks owning slaves. But just a little logical thinking. <clears throat> because see, I don't care what type of degree you have, and that's including myself. I don't care how many acronyms or letters you have behind your name or in front of your name. At the end of the day, I was taught basic logic. So, <clears throat> shout out to Lee Cummings, wrote a book, he wrote several books, check out his work, The Negro Question, Part 6, The 13 Black Colonies, and he went through and he proved using sources that came from those same Ivy League universities. Okay, that are holders of information. He proved that the original 13 colonies in the Americas that was set up by King James Stewart, King James Stewart is melanated. That's been proven. Not to mention, I did a drop on finding through memoirs of how when the Stuarts were dethroned, how it was said that you cannot mention their race. So if the Stuarts are known today as Caucasian white, 
and it was told not to mention their race, deductive reasoning would have to tell you that they were melanated slash black. And so if it was a black man that set up the original 13 colonies, would it not make sense that there were black slave owners? You see how logic works. Because black folk, a black particular royal bloodline, bloodlines, plural, because you got to look at the kingdoms of France, the kingdoms of Spain, etc. All of them black slash melanated. If they set up these systems of colonization and slavery, which now we should know what slavery really means. If they were black, then wouldn't the slave owners more than likely be black? Because we also know that there were white slaves. Yeah, we know that part too. We have other independent researchers that put out novels as well. Yeah, we have other independent researchers. And they use for their sources also memoirs. They also use information coming out of those same Ivy League universities where it was documented that white folks were slaves. Yeah, you know, White Cargo is one book. Another one, they were white and they were slaves. The Untold History of the Enslavement of Whites in Early America by Michael A. Hoffman II. We also know when we look at the setup of the colony, Jamaica, how the original inhabitants, that's not, let me back that up, not original inhabitants, the original immigrants slash what they are calling slaves, but we know that they came over as <clears throat> prisoners of war because they were kicked out of Ireland and England were black and some of them came on indentured servant contracts, black. They were the first ones, immigrants coming to Jamaica for the purpose of working. Now, whether or not they were prisoners of war because they were kicked out, whether or not they were on indentured servant contracts, they're still their purpose of being on that Jamaican island was to work. And white folks weren't even there. We know because Jamaica had to pass a law in order to start accepting white indentured servants. And that was at a later date. 
So again, I, 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 you know, this is just me. I just use simple logic. If the original 13 colonies were set up by a black man, which it was, King James Stewart, that would mean that black, the slaveholders would have to be black. Okay? That would also mean as colonization spread across all of the Americas and who was holding the seat of power at that time were black folks, that would mean that black slave owners would be all across the Americas anywhere that the business of slavery is conducted. Now, again, that's just using simple logic. But let's keep it going. Where did these free blacks come from? Some had never been slaves. Where did these free blacks come from? Some had never been slaves. They had been indentured servants who had become free. So... Do you understand why, again, I say when you look at this term slavery, you have to understand that they lumped a bunch of stuff in that one word. But they sold it to the public and they pushed it through their school system as meaning blacks coming from Africa captured as slaves brought over to the country as slaves. When it really was prisoners of war from different nations, so meaning, yes, Europe as well, yeah, yeah, that part, Europe as well, where they were kicked out, they were given a sentence, and the sentence was, you are banned from this particular nation. Get out. That's what happened to a lot of black Irish and English or Britons. So they would come over under the prisoner of war label serving their sentence out, or if, if you want to say coming over as um, serving out a prison sentence, a life prison sentence, you want to put it that way. I say prisoners of, of war in the case of the Cromwell situation. But either way, they were given a life sentence to serve out in one of the colonies. And then you had people that wanted to work. They felt it was a better opportunity to come to the new world to work, to get a better life. So they signed up for a labor contract. Hence the term indentured servant come into play. 
And how those contract works are, it was no more than seven years. So after that seven years was up under that uh, indentured servant contract, you can go on about your business and live on the land in the new world. So even with the statement they had been indentured servants who had became free, that's a little bit misleading because it really just meant <clears throat> their labor contract was up. So they were a free agent at that point. <clears throat> and they were able to stay in the new world permanently. Okay? So it's almost like the only difference is today, you're not signed, I, I don't know, unless you're in um, one of the major sports I think they're signed to a certain amount of a year contract. That's a labor contract. If you work a nine to five, you have a lot more freedom where you can still leave that nine to five. But some are have to sign where a non-complete clause that if you leave, you can't go work for our competition. So the indentured servants who they were on those labor contracts, <clears throat> they weren't slaves. Okay? The folks that got kicked out of Europe and given a sentence where they could never come back they were given a sentence of being an indentured servant and banned to the colonies for life where they couldn't come back. Okay? And even in some of those cases, even their sentence <clears throat> was seven years, whatever. Okay? But then some of the slave owners, which were really just managers or, or of colonies, <clears throat> were being slick with it and trying to um, get folks to stay longer than what their sentence was or their original uh, labor contract slash indentured servant contract is. So, when they say some had never been slaves, that's the reason why they were on indentured servant contracts. And when they say they had became free, that's because the indentured servant contracts were either up or they say, you know, they were able to buy their way out. That All that means is they were able to buy their way out of their contract. That's when they mean some were, some had purchased their freedom. That's what that means. They were able to buy their way out of their contract. Just like family members 
whose family members were came over under a um, sentencing were able to purchase the freedom of their family members. Okay. All right. Others were born of free parents while some were born by misogynation or mixing of the races. Oh, okay. Let's continue. Slaves were also <clears throat> emancipated. Oh, I do want to make uh, one point when they say misogynation. Because we get this concept that every time they mention misogynation, they are thinking about, <clears throat> they are referencing, sorry, family, I don't know why I got froggy all of a sudden. They are referencing black folk marrying white folk because white folk had the power, hence would free black folk from slavery. Uh, not really. Because there wasn't a lot of white folks in power. It was mainly black folk. So misogynation more than likely was with the indigenous population, i.e. the Indians, marrying the person under the indenture servant contract or with the, the sentencing. So them marrying an indigenous person of the land, i.e. an Indian, and them having children that made their offspring automatically free. Okay. No difference than today if an immigrant that's here illegally, well, you, be, you can become legal if you marry someone or if you are illegal and your child is born on the land, then your child is automatically a citizen, okay? Same concept, but, but a little bit different. But the point being here is that misogynation, you cannot, during these times, not talking about today, during these times, majority of the time meant that black population who were immigrants, not exclusively from Africa, but Europe. So those black Europeans marrying the indigenous population of the Americas made their offspring free. Okay, couldn't have been white folks because white people were enslaved right along with them same black people. And those white people were European, 
just like those black people were. And yes, there were some Africans, but very little Africans. The only exception is in Brazil, which that was the very first case of slavery done by the Portuguese, running slavery out of Africa. Okay? All right, so let's keep going. Slaves were also emancipated for military duty, for faithful service, by the last will and testament, saving a life, advanced age, or infirmity, and other reasons. Okay, so we didn't already talked about what this slave, how they lumped everything into slave. Okay, so the only ones that will have to be emancipated would be those that came over as prisoners of war slash came over because they were sentenced to a life in one of the colonies. So they were sentenced to labor in the colonies in another land. And yeah, some of them were sent to the African colonies in West Africa. Okay? So those were the only ones <clears throat> that could get emancipated. Because if you just came over, you were on a labor contract, you just had to serve out your labor contract or, you know, buy out that contract. Okay, all right. <clears throat> Moreover, runaway slaves constantly swelled the ranks of freedom. Free blacks were slave owners for more than 200 years. Y'all get that? So even <clears throat> in his particular thesis, He's saying that blacks were slave owners for more than 200 years. I'm telling you, they were the original slave owners. Let's continue. Black owners obtained slaves by inheriting through white and black relatives and by gifts and purchases. Nah. No, they didn't. Very little white, because white folks was hand-in-hand hand slaves with black people. And when I refer to slaves, I am referring to folks that were kicked out of their original homeland. In the case of the Cromwell stuff, Or they were convicted in their said homeland and they were banished to one of the colonies around the world to serve out their sentence. Okay. 
Whites did not hold the seat of power at that time. Blacks did. Whites started holding the seat of power at a later date <coughs> as they started intermarrying with them black folks that had power and started getting in the folds, sitting in those different seats and ultimately becoming the face of the families, the royal families that control the world. Okay? Many blacks had been accustomed to slavery in Africa. Uh, no, that's not true either. Because we have documented proof that Europe was sending their own folks to Africa also on, for sentencing, okay? Because they were trying to get them to go on indentured servant contracts, but because it was such harsh conditions, people were like, bump that. So they started ramping up more and more, sending uh, folks that they were sentencing over to Africa. And in turn, because they had colonies there, they would also send people from Africa over to uh, the New World, the Americas. Okay? And some of the indigenous African leaders that had cut deals or where wars had been won <clears throat> for those colonies to be set up. But in the case where the African leaders cut deals for those European nations to have those colonies, they sold, those African leaders sold some of their people to um, Europe. And either those people worked on those colonies or they shipped them over to, Af uh, to, to the New World. Okay? And in the case we see Portugal, they shipped a lot of Africans over to South America. Okay, so this is not about Africans and slavery, Africa being the face of slavery. This was a worldwide system. I'm going to say that again. <clears throat> Africa was not the exclusivity of slavery. It was a worldwide system. You follow the wars, you will see the slavery transatlantic patterns. Okay? <clears throat> so, uh, Halliburton, you got some work to do on this thesis. But we're going to continue. 
<clears throat> Many of the slaves in this country had previously been slaves there. No, that is not true. We got their records that they had to revise because folks kept busting them out. In the Americas, the highest count of slavery was 300,000. And you can't even include all Africans in that number. Okay? Portugal, uh, Brazil, South America, oh, I will have to go back to it. I think um, that was the highest number. Okay? So no, that is not true. All right. So, um, others had been owners of slaves in Africa. Okay, and I'm going to give you that. I, he's absolutely right there because if the British had colonies in Africa, which they did, and the monarch, and let's, let's be clear, the Brits, France, Spain, Portugal had colonies in Africa, which they did, and those monarchs were black, which it was, and they were uh, uh, using what they're labeling as slave labor, which is really them sending folks that they didn't kicked out of their particular homeland. Or folks that they're giving sentencings to. And in either case, family, even when they kick you, when they were kicking people out of their homeland, they still gave them a sentence of being banished uh, to the colonies. So either way you cut it, it was a sentencing. Okay. So they were kicking out their own folks. Okay, because they were going against the new regime coming in play. Or if it's just war for territory. And when the Brits, the Spaniards, the Portuguese, the French were in Africa, not all them African nations agreed for them to come over there and set up shop, i.e. colonies. So they were going to war with the indigenous populations there as well. So naturally, blacks would have been owners of slaves in Africa. See how that works. It did not, therefore, seem to them unnatural for a Negro in America to hold his brethren in bondage when he had become free and able to buy his fellows. Mm -hmm. And I'm fencing to even give you this. He's correct. No, it was not unnatural for blacks to own other blacks and what they're calling slavery because the whole system 
originated with Blacks. Just a small part that most of the populace is starting to understand now, even if you just want to look at, quote, quote, the Moors and their participation in the slave trade. So the Moors, when I speak of the Moors, I'm talking about up out of North Africa. Okay. So let's continue. Free blacks have become slave owners in our history. I'm sorry. Free blacks became slaveholder owners early in our history. And that is because the seat of power were with blacks early in our history. But let's continue. Indeed, one of the first known legal sanctions of slavery other than as punishment for crime involved a black owner. And shout out for this uh, next portion I'm about to read. I first heard this through Brother Kui Mayo. In 1654, Anthony Johnson and his wife, Mary and child, I was digging through my records to make sure it's this is my people with this shenanigans. In 1654, Anthony Johnson and his wife Mary in a court suit gained the service services of their black servant, John Kasor, for life. Actually, slave owning by free Negroes was so common in the period of the Commonwealth as to pass unnoticed and without criticism by those who consciously recorded events of the time. John H. Russell, in his The Free Negroes in Virginia, 1619 through 1865, wrote, The most remarkable property rights possessed by free Negroes was the right to acquire, own, and alienate slaves. Indeed, for more than 20 years from the time when the free Negroes first appeared in the courts, there was no legal restriction upon their rights to own indentured white servants. So child, let me go and sip this water to clear up this froggy voice. You see what they said? So even blacks owned white slaves, but notice the change of terminology. I want you to notice the change of terminology. Because whites have been labeled indentured white servants. But when you speak of blacks, it's slavery. Do you understand the games that they are playing? So if blacks were the lowest realm of society and whites had all of the power, how could it possibly be that any black... 
could own white servants. How's that possible? But as we have told you, as we have proven through the research, those white indentured servants, now they call indentured servants, once again, were on those plantations side by side with them black folks. But the black folks were first. But the black folks got stuck with the slave narrative. And the white folks got the label as an indentured servant. There were black slaveholders in Boston as early as 1724, in Connecticut by 1783, and in Alabama by 1797. Among the earliest records in the deed books of St. Augustine, Florida, is a document recording the sale of a black slave to a free black by a freed black. Mm -hmm. By 1790, 48 Maryland black owners possessed 143 slaves. Nat Butler, a free black who lived near Aberdeen in Hartford County, owned a small farm and regularly purchased and sold Negroes for the Southern trade. Some consider black slave owners hard taskmasters and claimed free black owners were, as a usual thing, much more severe on their, their slaves than the white owners. Mm -hmm. And this has been consistent in the research that I found when it comes to white slavery, because I don't care how they want to, um, white slavery as well, because I don't care how they want to lump it up. You got to be consistent. Can't tell me that we working on the same plantation and we were both sent either sentenced to a crime or we both on labor contracts but I'm a slave and you're an indentured servant. No, I don't work that way. But the point being, in the case <clears throat> of when blacks are slave owners, that they were brutal. Okay? Let's continue. There were approximately 319,000 free blacks in the United States in 1830. Approximately 13.7% of the total black population was free. And that's interesting because when we look at the slave voyages records, they said approximately only 300,000 slaves were brought to uh, what we're calling the United States. So I find that really, really interesting that they're saying it was 319 that were free. A significant 
number. Matter of fact, you didn't list no source for this either, Halliburton. Where's your source for that? But let's, we're going to keep going. A significant number of these free blacks were the owners of slaves. The census of 1830 lists 3,775 free Negroes who own a total of 12,760 slaves. Carter G. Woodson in Free Negro Owners of Slaves in the United States in 1830 in the Journal of Negro History states, <clears throat> the census records show that the majority of the Negro owners of the slaves were such from the point of philanthropy. In many instances, the husband purchased the wife or vice versa. Yep, that makes sense. So we t I talked about that earlier. <clears throat> they were purchasing them either out of that prison sentence or purchasing um, out of a labor, <clears throat> indentured labor contract. In many instances, the husband purchased the wife or vice versa. The slaves belonging to such family were few compared. So let's go back. <clears throat> the slaves belonging to such families were few compared with the large number found among the whites on the well-developed plantations. Slaves of Negroes were in some cases the children of a free father who had purchased his wife. If he did not thereafter em emancipate the mother, as so many such husbands failed to do, now, child, this ain't the first time I heard, I've not heard that. I saw that in a source. If he did not therefore emancipate the mother, as so many such hus husbands failed to do, his own children were born his slaves and thus, and were thus reported to the enumerators. Some of these husbands were not anxious to liberate their wives immediate. They considered it advisable to put them on probation for a few years, and if they did not find them satisfactory, they would sell their wives as other slaveholders disposed of Negroes. Okay. So you talk about being in a messed up marriage. Child. You better be careful who you all hugged up with, baby. Because your life literally depends on it. So let's continue. For example, a Negro sh shoemaker in Charleston, South Carolina, purchased his wife for $700. But on finding her hard to please, he sold her a few months, therefore, for $750, gaining... $50 by the transaction. Baby, let me tell you something. And this is not, um, I'm sure this story in the memoir. Okay, so that's where that source comes from, Carter G. Woodson. Because I've heard this before. I ran across it before. So now I know the source. Okay. So that meant the wife 
was on, uh, she had some life sentencing. The wife had some life sentencing from Europe. That's the high probability. She had a life sentencing from Europe, meaning she was kicked out of Europe, either through the Cromwell situation Or she was just sentenced to life for whatever reason. And usually when they sentence folks to life, it was because they were going against the ruling regime. Okay? Now, of course, the exception to that rule would be coming up out of Africa. Okay? And even in that case, you still have to factor in that even on those European African colonies that they took their lifers that originally came from Europe that they shipped over to Africa. Okay, now we're going to ship you over to the Americas. Or in the case of the Portuguese, when they're the ones documented at a highly um, rate of sending Africans over to South America. So in the rare cases, lifetime sentences came from slave trading out of Africa. So meaning you were bought out of Africa by being captured on your African native land or an African chief sold you. If your people are from what we're calling today the United States and some of the Caribbean islands, it gets a little bit a little bit more trickier in the Caribbeans. You have to look at each island separately and look at the migration patterns. But definitely out of what they're calling today as the United States, the chances that your folks are indigenous to Africa is very, very slim. That's why when you're doing your genealogy, you're not going to find your people in the records as being African. And when you cross-check on them ship manifests, you're not going to find that either. More than likely, what you're going to find are your folks came over from Europe. And you just have to research via those ship manifests how they were coming over. They even have, they're calling them um, convict ship manifest. They're out there. This information is there. Okay? They're going to tell you why, you know, people are coming into the country. 
okay? So in this case where blood is, you know, bought his wife's freedom out of that sentencing, then, okay, you know what? Well, we're not getting along. I'm going to just turn around and I'm just going to sell your labor contract because I now own your labor contract. I didn't bought you up out of your sentence or labor contract. You know what? You're getting on my nerves. We ain't getting along. So he wanted to recoup his money. So he sold a contract to somebody else and made a $50 profit. The editor personally knew a man in Cumberland County, Virginia, whose mother was purchased by his father who had first bought him. Becoming enamored of a man's slave, she gave him her husband's manumission papers that they might escape together to free soil. Baby, she treacherous too. Child, that she was straight up wrong. How you gonna get that man? Um, contract free papers to some some other man you want to hug up with and then run off. Child. That's how y'all was doing it in the 17, 1800s. That's how y'all was rolling. Child. Upon detecting this plot, the officers of the law received the impression that her husband had turned over the papers to the slave and arrested the freedom for the supposed offense. He had such difficulty in getting himself from this complication that his attorney's fee amounted to $500. Dang. To pay them, he disposed of his faithless wife for that amount. Now, you know what, blood? I ain't mad at you for that now. I ain't even mad at you for that. You had every right to recoup your ends. <laughs> every right. Child. So, once again, I hope y'all peeping game. Even back in the 17, 1800s, how people was clowning as is concerned of marriage and all of that jazz. And don't this also prove that people were married back in that time? Because isn't the narrative that slaves couldn't get married? Remember that narrative? Y'all remember that? Remember that? Remember that? That slaves couldn't get married? So which is it? Okay. So let's continue. It is at least questionable whether the above examples constitute proof of benevolence or philanthropy. In 1913, John H. Russell wrote, in the exercise of their legal right to own slaves, black masters did not always confine themselves to the purchase of their kindred for uh, beneficent pur pur purposes. So I'm going to say benevolent purposes. Some Negroes purchased and held slaves with the same considerations of profit and view as governed the action of white owners of slaves. Okay, so I'm telling you, and not that I'm telling you, it's just backed up by the sources that Blacks started the whole game. 
okay? So yeah, it was about that money. Nevertheless, most historians evidently have asquienced with the philanthropy thesis among thesis advanced by Woodson. Okay, so he's pretty much saying that uh, most historians said that blacks were purchasing blacks up out of slavery uh, based on, because that's my family, I love them, blah, 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 this, that, and the third, instead of it being about, uh, that may have been the case, but it was about that money also. John Hope Franklin in From Slavery to Freedom, A History of Negro American states that the extent of slaveholding among free Negroes has been a matter of only recent concern to the student of history. Yeah, we know. Honey, you ain't got to tell us. We, we, we done been through school. Okay? They're those indoctrination centers. However, the majority of Negro owners of slaves had some personal interest in their property. He does concede that there were instances, however, in which free Negroes had a real economic interest in the institution of slavery and held slaves in order to improve their economic status. Ulrich mm -hmm. B. Phillips in American Negro Slavery, published in 1918, stated, it is clear that aside from the practices of holding slave relatives as a mean of giving them virtual freedom, an appreciable number of color proprietors owned slaves purely as a productive investment. It was doubtless a group of these who sent a joint communication to a New Orleans newspaper when succession and war were impending. The free color population, native of Louisiana, owned slaves. And they are dearly attached to their native land. And they are ready to shed their blood for her defense. Uh-huh. Yeah, we know. You know, Nolens that uh, wasn't that a French colony? Ah, okay. They have no sympathy for abolitionism, no love for the North, but they have plenty for Louisiana. They will fight for her in 1861 as they fought in 1814 through 1815. Mm -hmm. In 1929, Ulrich B. Phillips in Life and Labor in the Old South stated that a few free blacks became slaveholders of a of plantations. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me reread that again. Sorry. In 1929, Yorich B. Phillips in Life and Labor in the Old South stated that a few free blacks became slaveholders of plantation scale. Of plantation scale. In a footnote on the same page, he stipulated. In the main, however, the slaves owned by free um, Negroes were their own kindred, bought and held merely because the laws forbade manumission without exile. Okay. 
Phillips cites Woodson as documentation for his statement. Kenneth, and, and I'm just going to add on to this because I'm going to put logic into this. You had to have money to be able to buy out labor contracts, indentured servant contracts, or buy out sentencing or conviction sentencing. You had to have money to do that. You had to have money to buy land plus buy the contracts plus money to run the land, which would be plantation, okay? So hence, most of the big plantation owners came from money. Most of the big plantation owners came from money. So meaning they either came from Europe with business investors and in most cases they just those uh, investors over in Europe just hired people to be to run the plantation but let's say in a case they did send one of their investors over there they came from money. Okay? Or plantation owners were working under a contract themselves via the kings in them. Okay? So that's having access to money. Okay? Or in the case that you have partnered up, uh, let's say through marriage, with them indigenous Indian folk, and y'all set up a plantation. All right? But let's make no mistake about it in all the scenarios that I just named. Most of those plantation owners were black. Very little whites because whites did not hold the seat of power at that time. And if you did find whites that were plantation quote, quote, owners, they were either married into the black folk with power or they were appointed by that black kingdom to run said plantation. Okay? So when they speak of freed blacks who were buying out contracts, where they're calling buying slaves, of course that would be the rare case. Because they didn't have the money. Let's continue.
Kenneth M. Stamp in The Peculiar Institution, Slavery in the Antebellum South stated, the great majority of these free color slave owners had merely purchased husbands, wives, or children and were unable to emancipate them under existing state law. Stamp cites Woodson for documentation. Okay. Clement Eaton, in A History of the Old South, stated, the year 1830 marks the zenith of the ownership of slaves by free Negroes. Most of such slaves being purchased in order to protect relatives, but others for explo exploitation as agricultural labor. Eaton provides no citation for his statement. He does mention that an interesting case of the ownership of slaves by free Negroes was the purchase of an eloquent slave preacher by the Pleasant Green Baptist Negro Church of Lexington, Kentucky. When the slave preacher was put up for auction in the settlement of an estate, a friendly white Baptist congregation purchased him for their black brethren who in turn paid for him on an installment plan by taking the Sunday collection to the white deacons. Okay. <laughs> William B. Hesseltine and David L. Smiley in the South in American History stated, a few Negroes were slaveholders. Some claim ownership only of members of their family in order to keep them out of the insecure status of the free persons of color, but others possessed slaves whom they worked as they did their white neighbors. Yeah, because uh, Hesseltime and Smiley, they're, they're really telling the truth here. Hesseltime and Smiley provided no citation for their statements. Oh, okay. I don't know when they said that, um, let me see, they're saying 18. Okay, yeah, so they should have provided a, a cite, citation for that if they were seeing it in 1960. Francis Butler Simpkins in A History of the South makes no mention of free black ownership of slaves. Well, why should they when who's... We know what the official narrative they want us to believe. The massive 10-volume series, A History of the South, being published by the Louisiana State University Press, surprisingly does not mention free black ownership of slaves. Oh, is it really not surprisingly? It's surprisingly to you? It's not surprisingly to me. Because not only did they not mention it there which note that it was published by, who Who published it again? Who published it again? You say a university published it again. You mean the same university that is not teaching that blacks own slaves? That the only way you could possibly get to that information is at a graduate level? And that's a bit if then? that really the only way you get to that information, if your said thesis, which this is your said thesis, 
Halliburton. Beloved, this is your said thesis on blacks owning slaves. Or if you're doing a dissertation at the PhD level. So why is it a surprise that a university didn't mention blacks owning slaves? Yeah, okay then. Let's continue. James G. Randall and David Donnell in the Civil War and the Reconstruction wrote that in some cases, free black held slaves of their own. They cite John Hope Franklin for documentation. In a footnote, they included the quotation, frequently the husbands purchased his wives or vice versa, and they, are, and they were other relatives or friends who had been rescued by some affluent free Negro. How'd that affluent, how did that free Negro become affluent? Yeah, that part. There were some instances, however, in which free Negroes had real economic status. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Franklin did not document the quoted statement. The bibliographical notes in the chapter in which it appears, however, contains Woodson's work plus other research also cited Woodson. So shout out, I, I never would have known that Carter G. Woodson was spitting the real tea on slavery. He was going against the grain. And so they came at him saying that he's a liar same as they do today for those of us that bring up this information, bring the sources. We're the liars because we're not stamped or we didn't get the approval of said universities and scholars who wrote the history. Oh, okay, then. So let's continue. <laughs> Luther Porter Jackson in his Free Negro Labor and Property Holdings in Virginia indicated that free black slave owners was temporarily and benevolent with owners serving as intermediaries for eventual mansumission. Nevertheless, Jackson stipulated some free Negroes held slaves as permanent property. Indeed, in 1830, the free blacks of Virginia held more wealth in slaves than in real estate. Approx approximately 21% of the free blacks heads of families of Petersburg were slave owners. The figure in Richmond was 26%. And the percentage was similar in other Virginia cities. Isn't Virginia or wasn't the Virginia one of the main ports of entries into what we're calling the United States? And from that point, folks were dispersed. 
isn't Virginia one of the original 13 colonies? It so happened uh, that was set up by a black king named James Stewart. Well, let's continue. Moreover, Jackson stated that slave hiring by free blacks was a common practice. Free black owners were also known to hire out their slaves. Moreover, former slaves, after gaining freedom, sometimes became slave owners themselves. Yeah. You know, you telling it like it, T.I. is. Jackson. That is correct. So they were buying indentured servant contracts or conviction slash prisoner contracts. And they were even hiring out their folks for labor, for labor, because those indentured servitude contracts were labor contracts. Okay, so in other words, if you're on a contract and somebody else needed work or help, the person that has your contract, you know, your boss, your boss, and you are their employee, would strike a deal with that other boss from another company that needed help and you go over there and work. Uh, I think that today they call that you are a contractor and or a temporary employee. Hmm. Does this all sound a little familiar to you all? So why wouldn't the goal of someone that was on an indentured servant contract to be a boss, i.e. what they're calling a slave owner? But let's continue. A careful examination of the census figures in 1830, the same data Woodson used to formulate his philanthropy thesis reveals evidence which at least casts suspicion upon the validity of that premise. The census year of 1830 was selected for the following reason is advanced by Woodson. Right, let, let's see. And, and uh, again, family, that's why you have to do your genealogy. Go through those records. Go through the records. But let's continue. There were several reasons for selecting the census of 1830. In the first place, the earliest reports do not give as much information as the census of 1830. 
At that time, moreover, the free Negroes had about reached their highest mark as a distant class. The reactions which set in earlier in the century restricted their freedom and in many cases expelled them from the South. This census then evidently reports the names of larger numbers number of represent, representative free Negroes than any other census prior to their debasement to a lower status of their migration from the South. This trek reached its highest point between 1830 and 1835. Most of the free Negroes in the North in 1830, therefore, had been there for some years. Okay, so, okay, I can understand why he picked that, but those who are from the South and you run across them 1830 census, it still tells the story of what your folks were then, whether or not they were landowners, whether or not they can read or read and write, how many were in the household, who was the head of household, and what was their occupation. Okay. The following table lists the number of blacks who owned slaves, their place of residency by state, and the number of slaves owned. Uh, where did they say they're getting this from? He didn't say yet. Okay, let's see if they tell us here. Okay, so they're going... Um, This is by state. D.C., if this is after 1775, yeah, D.C. was established. So 133. Louisiana, which we already talked about, 965. Um, Virginia, that makes sense. They're the highest numbers. 948. All right, let me pause the doggone um, sirens, the weekly test. I'll be right back. All right, we're back. Now that that test is open, over, I keep forgetting every Wednesday at noon, they set off those sirens um, as a test. Okay, so um, we understand why uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, has the highest count. I remember the French were there. Also, um, Maryland, we should understand that as well, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's one of the 13 original colonies. Um, you know, D.C. is in that area as well. Um, now, North Carolina and South Carolina, because at one point they were uh, together. They weren't separate. Uh, and, of course, we understand Virginia having a high number because they were also uh, one of the first original 13 colonies. Now, North Carolina and South Carolina, they are unique in the sense that a lot of black Europeans immigrated into the Carolinas, and they came in with money, okay, um, establishing banks 
and all of that jazz, okay? Um, you know, you'll hear the term Huguenots. And shout out to Brother Kui Mayo for um, bringing up that term Huguenots, okay? So they came in as the Huguenots, came in through uh, the different churches, uh, but they were also of a certain religion, starts with the J, ends with an S, and I'm going to put the ish on there, faith, okay, right, but those people were melanated as well, okay, so that's why you're going to see a high number of slave owners in North Carolina, South Carolina, and free black slave owners, okay, the cases in North Carolina, South Carolina, those people we know for a fact came in with money, just like we know um, in these original 13 colonies, the original folks that came there in those colonies to run the colonies had money as well, or they had access of money. Okay. Um, so number of free black slave owners, number of slaves owned by free blacks. So you can see the numbers correspond, uh, with the number that's, that's owned. Okay. All right. So I don't know where they get this information from. Oh, I'm assuming a duh. I'm assuming they get it from the 1830 census. I apologize, family. They're getting this from the 1830 census. Okay. So now do you understand why it is important for you to do your genealogy? Okay, let's continue. Nearly, oh, oh, and just, just a note, if you see on um, the census, your folks label as a uh, slave, then you cross-reference that with the ship manifest, okay? Go to the ship manifest and also go to the um, the convict ship manifest. And that's going to tell you where they came from. That's why when people talk this out of Africa crap, I say, okay, what part of Africa were your people enslaved? I don't want you to give me no 23 in me. I want you to tell me exactly when your people came over as slaves in Africa. You should be able to give me the year. You should be able to give me the ship. Okay? You got to give me something. <laughs> okay, so let's continue. Nearly all of the free black owners of slaves lived in the South and border states. At this time, 92.8% of the total black population resided in that region. Only 85, per, 85 owners of 159 slaves lived outside of that region, an average of 1.87 slaves per owner. Consequently, the South and border states were home to 
3,700 black owners of uh, 12,601 slaves, an average uh, 3.41 slaves per owner, slightly more than 2% of the free blacks in the South and border state-owned slaves. Woodson thesis that free blacks owned slaves for benevolent and philanthropic reasons appear to be based principally on the contention that it was always difficult and often impossible to emancipate them and that most free blacks owned just a few slaves and that they were frequently relatives. Okay, and I get that concept, but that's only counting those that didn't own plantations. See, that's the part they're leaving out. But see, you got to get up pretty early in the morning. And matter of fact, you better rethink about it because once you didn't got up, I had already been up a couple days before you to pull one on me. So even with Wilson breaking this down, and he's just simply going on the 1830 census. That's individual slave owners. What about them plantation owners? That's who made up the majority of what they're calling the quote, quote, slavery. Yeah, you know, them plantations that ran like businesses. Okay, so that would be like us saying, you know, um, there were other people that created software. They created apps, but very few apps were created. And the reason very few apps were created, of course, is because the big corporations already have majority of the users of applications using them because they had the money to do it and to capture the audience. Okay? So that's not factored in these big plantations. Right? Because wouldn't they have to file taxes? They're going to have to file taxes and all of that differently. There is a difference when you are filing taxes as a business owner, right? As a business owner versus an individual. There is a difference when you are looking at a census which is looking at a household, which is looking at a household versus looking at a business slash plantation. So if I'm looking at my family records as a, on the census, more than likely you're going to see laborer. So that meant they work for somebody. Or you're going to see farmer. And more than likely, 
in the cases of a laborer, they worked on somebody's said plantation. They had an employer. Now, farmer could possibly mean the same. But they also have on that census, were you a landowner or not? So if that's checked, yes, and you see farmer, then you know your folks ran their own farm and probably they sustained themselves through that working farm. So do you understand how that works? What's missing in this equation of slavery is the fact that plantations were ran as businesses. Okay? So let's continue. All right. It is true that approximately 42% of the black slave owners in the South and border states possessed only one slave. It is also true, however, that more white slaveholders of that region possess one slave than any other number. Okay, I don't understand that. Let me reread that. It is true that approximately 42% of the black slave owners in the South and border states possessed only one slave. It is also true, however, that more white slaveholders of that region possess one slave than any other number. Only a small portion of these own substantial numbers. Okay, you kind of slip in here a little bit, Halliburton, because you're making the assumption. Okay, maybe you're still going off of the 1830 census data. But uh, you're a little bit flawed there. Only a small portion of these own substantial numbers. Oh, okay. Again, even if whites owned slaves, you're still admitted that even the white people own only a small amount of slaves. So meaning the whites were able to come up off of those indentured serving contracts themselves and go out and buy other folks' contracts. So the same would hold true for them. That's on an individual level. You're still not factoring in the plantation owners. That's where the bulk of that labor was going on. Okay? So now that's how logically I am reading it. Okay? Moreover, Woodson stipulated that the majority of black owners lived in urban areas. Urban slaveholders of all races own fewer slaves per capita than rural, rural owners. Furthermore, the purchase of slaves always represented a sizable capital outlay and free blacks were seldom affluent. 
blacks who own no other property seem to have held no slaves. Right, that would make sense because how they got the money to buy slaves. However, blacks who did own other proper, property frequently did own slaves. Uh, yeah, a uh, duh. Is that not logical? You got to have the money in that process, right? Okay. So just like today, if you have employees, somebody working for you, you have to have money to pay them, right? If you want to hire someone to come and mow your grass or come in to clean your house, to cook your food, you have to pay them, right? So meaning you have to either have some type of income in order to pay for those services or in the case of an employee, you have to have some type of business in order to pay those employees. So, yeah, that's simple logic. John Hope Franklin, in an article in North Carolina Historical Review, reprinted in Free Blacks in America, 1800 through 1860, states, the enterprising free Negro owners of slaves can usually be identified because of their extensive holdings of real and personal property and because of their inactivity in the manumission movement. Hmm. So let me just run that back for the slow ones in the back. The enterprising free Negro owner of slaves can usually be identified by because of their extensive holdings of real and personal property and because of their inactivity in the manumission movement. So meaning they weren't buying family members. They had some money. So again, where did these quote, quote, if we're going by the official narrative that is taught at the university level, as well as the school level, where did all these free blacks get all this money? Where they're able to become not only landowners and have personal property, and they were able to buy all of these, quote, quote, slaves, which were really buy all of these indenture serving contracts, whether or not they were convicted of crime, crimes and exiled or not. Where did they get all of this money? Where did these former slaves get all of this money? Okay. All right? It just doesn't add up. Ulrich B. Phillips stated that the laws forbade manumission without exile. Exile may not be the proper term for leaving the state 
as some states indeed did require. So now that's interesting. That's very, very interesting. So meaning, oh, well, yeah, okay, then you can buy out their contract, family member. I'm going to let you buy it out. But I tell you what, you can't never come back to this state. And don't think that that was they were doing it out of spite. Let's think from a business perspective. Take the personal out of it. Think of it from a business perspective. If you're coming to me trying to buy my employee out of their employment contract. Okay, yeah, I'm going to let you buy, you know, your relative out of this employee contract. But I don't want you competing with me on my grounds. I don't want you to get into the habit because, see, now your relative done worked for me for seven years. Or let's say they worked for him for five because really the seven would be where their contract was done and up for renewal. Unless in the case if they were sentenced to a lifetime of labor in the colonies. But either way, let's say you didn't work. For your employer, which in this case they're saying your slave owner, slave master, five to ten years, you know their business operation in and out, baby. And if you think in a business owner slash boss mentality, Bay, I know their suppliers. I know how it's ran. Matter of fact, I could tell you what they're doing wrong and how to run this game in order for you to make money. So yes, I can understand them banning them or putting the stipulation to buy out that contract. Y'all gonna have to get up out of here. And and you're not you're not welcome back because I don't I don't want this to catch on. Okay. So that's the business side of it. Because it can't be out of malice. It cannot be out of malice. Because if I'm coming to you to buy out a contract, if you can't stand my guts, if you feel I'm inferior to you. From a racial standpoint, you would not sell me that contract. It would not matter because it was about business. Okay, yeah, you giving me the right price to sell it. But you know what? No, y'all not finna uh, compete with me. Because see, Susie May didn't been with me or John and been with me running my business for quite a few years. Y'all can really come up as competitors. Yeah, I sell you the contract, but but y'all y'all can't come back this way. Okay, you're out of here. Okay, but okay, right. So, but is leaving the state too dear as a price for their freedom? Okay, so now that's just my spin on it, on why they told them to get to stepping. It was more of a business reason than personal and racial. 
because if it was personal and racial, they wouldn't have been selling the contracts. Kenneth M. Stamp stated that the free black owners were unable to emancipate them slaves under existing laws. Okay, and again, to me, it was about competitiveness and the cost of labor and all of that jazz. This appears to be a broad generalization that's sometimes true in some states, but was never true in all states. Moreover, these restrict, restrictive emancipation laws provided a convenient, rational, or excuse for not freeing slaves. Okay, well, in other words, it provided a convenient, rational, or excuse for not letting people being bought up out of those lifetime indenture-serving contracts that were really um, conviction or prison sentencing, okay? So that's how people became lifetime, what they're terming slaves. It was a lifetime prison sentence. Hesseltine and Smiley stated, and, and if you think about it, if you have a lifetime um, labor contract, you're going to get your money out of that lifetimer. That lifetime contract is going to pay itself back after so many years. Okay, calculate the R the ROI. Okay. On that puppy, they know, well, once this um, laborer, or, or if you want to say prisoner, works so many years, I've paid, I paid myself back what I've paid for their contract, okay? Then I got to factor in, and you know, and that's including factoring in how much it's costing you to house and, and feed them and clothe them also. You got to factor all of that in. It's economics, folks. Okay? All right. Hasseltine and Smiley state some claim ownership in order to keep them slaves out of the insecurity status of the free persons of color. I don't believe that. Because again, this was about economics. I don't want a bunch of free people, well, what they're calling free. I don't want a bunch of people that aren't under some type of indentured contract running around. Okay, this was about economics, family. Economics and business competitiveness. Would those 12,760 slaves have, have preferred the security of their slavery more than the insecurity of their freedom? Now, you know what, y'all? Let me tell you something. Halliburton. Halliburton. Baby, I'm not finna argue with you on that. 
I'm not finna argue with you on that. That's a deep statement. Would those, we'll round it up to 1,300, would 13,000, would those 13,000 slaves prefer the security of their slavery more than the insecurity of their freedom? Child, you done said a mouthful there. So meaning, what they say, what's that term, y'all, when they say, um, like the, the hot uh, bed, some term saying how people prefer to be imprisoned because they know what to expect. They know they're going to get fed. They know they got a place to stay. You know what I'm saying? Versus when you don't have that, you got to provide all of that stuff on your own. Just like some people prefer the security of working, of being an employee versus being a business owner. Okay? Same difference. Okay? There's more risk in being free. None of the advanced reasons for not freeing slaves applied to those 85 owners of the 159 slaves who lived in, in the North. Also, manumission would have been relatively easy for the 910 owners of the 2,095 slaves in Washington, D.C. and in the border states. It appears illogical to assume that free blacks would not desire to own slaves. Okay, well, you know what, Halliburton, you, you back on the right track with me, blood. Yeah, it is illogical. And thank you for bringing logic into it. I appreciate you. African blacks have been practicing slavery for centuries. Okay, so this is where you're going to have to step up your scholarship. African blacks were not the only ones, okay? Them European blacks as well, okay? They've been practicing slavery for centuries as well. Now, you can put it on the African blacks as the first if you want to throw the Moors up in there out of North Africa. I give you that. But let's not get it twisted. This where you going to have to either... Either admit the entire truth or step up your scholarship. Because those black European kingdoms were also practicing slavery for centuries, since the 1500s. The vast majority of American blacks have consistently attempted to emulate white middle class society. Okay, so that may be what it is today. But let's be clear, that white middle class society, baby, is imitating the first middle class society, which was a black middle class society, which was emulating the black European royal society structure. So you're going to have to step up your scholarship, beloved. Southern white attorneys, clergy, merchants, physicians, professors, and politicians, as well as the aristocratic planters invested in slaves for profit and status. Yeah. 
okay, they may have done it at a later date, but the them black people were doing it first. Okay. They were doing it first. Because they were the aristocratic planters. They were the merchants. All of these, they were that first. Many blacks did likewise, while still others probably would have if they possessed the means. And they did. They possessed the means. So again, you're telling this in reverse. Because the blacks were the ones setting the standards and the whites were the latecomers to the game imitating the blacks. And that is certainly not me putting one above the other tooting the horn of the blacks because all of it was wrong because they're all squatters. It wasn't their land to begin with. I don't care if you're black, brown, purple, green. If you set yourself in the position of colonization and owning land that was not yours through bloodline, I don't care what color you are, I don't care whom you were working for, you're wrong. The free black could elevate his status to a greater degree by owning slaves than in any other way and status was desired. Though it should not be construed as majority opinion, Ulrich B. Phillips states, many of the well-to-do colored freedmen, y'all running around here with this freedmen, agenda and we're going to get into this whole freeman thing those running around talking about reparations this is why you'll never get anywhere because you don't know true history trust me they know it's documented they know they know you don't know And while you're running around here talking about reparations, getting a payment, you don't truly understand what wealth and what generational wealth your people were fleeced out of. So again... While you're running around talking about reparations, you're getting payment for slavery. And we done already broke down to you what slavery was really about. You're not understanding and realizing what wealth and generational wealth your bloodline was fleeced out of. Because if your people were the indigenous people of these said lands in the Americas, 
and colonization is built on squatting on indigenous people's land and you had kingdoms that built their wealth off of said land, how can you possibly take a reparations check? Do you not understand that they could not even pay you for the amount of wealth that they have fleeced generations out of. So those that run around with this reparation discussion, this is why every time this discussion is on the table, either it gets shut down or you know what they do? They placate you. And they open up the doors to everyone. And do you understand why they open up the doors to everyone? Because you're basing your premise of reparations from the standpoint that your people were immigrants. So if you're basing it on the premise that your people were immigrants, that means they got to give it to all immigrants. Black, white, African. So those of you starting these movements, you don't know true history. You don't use simple logic. Because I've been done told y'all, I didn't just wake up out the bed and tell you this. That when you put the conversation of reparations on the table, you got to pay the white people too. And white people just so happen they ain't got hip to the game yet. Because one thing about white people, those of you that like to sit up and criticize white people. They don't want that label of slavery on their back. And tied to their legacy and their heritage. So let me roll that for the slow ones in the back. Let me repeat that. You can say all you want to say about white people. One thing is for sure. They are not stepping up in masses saying. Oh yeah give us reparations also. Because they don't want the title of slavery tied to their legacy and their bloodline. But they were on them plantations with blacks. And it was documented accounts that they were treated worse. So again, those of you having these reparation conversations, you better know what you're talking about. And based on what I'm seeing, I don't care what acronym you come out with, you don't know what you're talking about. And you don't know what you're talking about because you don't know who you are. 
and you don't know who you are because you ain't done no amount of research on your own genealogy. And if you don't know who you are and you don't do no research on your own genealogy, I sure in the heck not going to trust you to research history and have a conversations on reparation on reparations you do not speak on my behalf nor my family's behalf you can't do it that's not the narrative my family fits so let's continue all right so uh well-to-do color freedmen tended to prize their distinctive position so strongly as to deplore any prospect of a general emancipation for fear it would submerge them in the great black mass mm -hmm. in the free negro in north carolina 1790 to 1860 john hope franklin states at no time during the antebellum period were free negroes in north carolina without some slaves the motives for such ownership were perhaps as benevolent as they were in other groups. Without doubt, there were those who possessed slaves for the purpose of advancing their owner's well-being. With such a view in mind, these Negro slaveholders were more interested in making their farms or carpenter shops pay than they were in treating their slaves humanely. Oh, so you mean it was about the money and profit? Oh, okay then. Just like I said, I mean, I, 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 I just, I have to use logic and deductive reasoning. Beyond any scholarship folks want to claim, I just have to use logic and deductive reasoning. You know, that's, that's what my parents taught me. Franklin continued, no doubt there was some effort to conform to the pattern established by the dominant white. Nope, and they weren't dominant at that time. That became later. Slaveholding groups within the state in the effort to elevate themselves to a position of respect and privilege. Okay, so no, again, that is not correct. Whites did not dominate power. They did not come into power until after the Civil War. Okay. It would be a serious mistake to automatically assume that free blacks own their spouse or children only for benevolent purposes. Purchase was a sure method to attain a young, handsome, talented, or exceptional spouse. Black ownership of a relative did not constitute prima facie or or it's facky i guess evidence of benevolence or philanthropy a free black in trimble county kentucky sold his own son and daughter south one for one thousand the other for twelve hundred there are many instances in which fathers sold their children We're going we're gonna to keep going because even though slavery is not what they told us, okay, even though it was about uh, labor, 
it's still sad. It, it that it, it's it's really still sad. A Maryland father sold his slave children in order to purchase his wife. I don't know what kind of, what kind of woman he was. Because uh, we wouldn't have been moving anyway. No, I, I stay up under this contract. I don't care if it is, even if it's a lifetime sentence. I'll stay up. I'll stay up under that. Because you got me all the way faded. A Columbus, Georgia black woman, Delcy Pope, owned her husband. So, in other words, she bought his behind up out of that contract. He offered her in some way, oh, offended, I'm sorry. He offended her in some way and she sold him. Baby, that was, that was brutal. Doggone some divorce, honey. You let me hold your indentured servant contract. Go on and play with me. <laughs> play with me if you want to, player. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not to be taken lightly, but if you think about just the relationships and their husband and wife. So again, I thought slaves couldn't be married back up in the day. And they're selling each other. So again, it just shows you the importance of who you you are selecting for your spouse. So if things don't work out, I need to recoup my money. Not you going on about your way. I going on about my way. Let's go on and get this divorce. Or if it's been enough time, let's go on and get a node. You just going to straight sell me back into another slave contract. Child. I can't even call it with these relationships. Fanny Kennedy of Louisville, Kentucky, owned her husband, Jim, a drunken cobbler whom she threatened to sell down the river. Child, well, was he drunk when you met him? Fanny. And you know Fanny sound like a southern black woman name. Now, come on now, y'all don't play with me. Auntie Fanny. Was um Unc drunk? Was Unc Jim drunk when you met him? Was he drunk when you met him? You thought you could clean him up? Auntie Fanny. Child, y'all are y'all seeing some of the same mistakes that are being made today? I wish I would clean somebody up. Nah, uh, nah, bruh. I'll pass. But let's continue. At New Bern, North Carolina, a free black wife and son purchased their slave husband father. When the newly bought father criticized his son. The son sold him to a slave trader, baby. So don't come talking to me. Now, this is me. That bull crap about what was going on in the plantation and how the family was strong. Oh, was it really that? Oh, was it really not so strong? Was it really not so strong? Because we see here, somebody get a little power, somebody get a little change. People's degeneracy behavior kicked right on the heck on in. Because degeneracy runs through the bloodline. But let's just continue. 
The son boasted afterwards that the old man had gone to the cornfields about New Orleans where they might learn him some manners. Child. All right, so they're just breaking down again uh, the number of slaves owned. Um, and then the number of free black owners. Okay. All right, so I'm not going to go through those numbers. You can see them yourself. And I'm assuming that they're still taking that out of that, um, excuse me, that 1830 census. Okay. All right. <clears throat> okay, let me, <laughs> excuse me, scroll through that. Maybe that's the end of it. That is the end of it. Okay, that's the end of it. All right. So um, you didn't do bad, uh, Mr. Halliburton. You, you got, got a little bit more, more going. And I don't know if you had to do it this way to get it published. Um, but the name of this is Free Black Owners of Slaves, a reprisal of the Woodson Thesis by R. Halliburton Jr. So shout out to you, I'm assuming, sir. And if it's not, sir, I apologize in advance uh, for this thesis. I truly appreciate it. Um, and shout out to the ancestor, Carter G. Woodson. I appreciate it. You were telling the truth, sir. I appreciate it. It is very much so appreciated. So family, I just wanted to once again bring you just another layer, another insight into what slavery was all about and how, quote, quote, blacks were participating and navigating through slavery, okay? So um, if you are not subscribed to us, I highly encourage you to subscribe, like, and share. Um, I'll be back, of course, uh, with um, more content content for the podcast. Who child? I have so much stuff, family. I have a lot of stuff, and shout out to uh, my family listeners. Y'all are hitting me with so much good stuff that child, I got literally, I could literally come on here every day and do a podcast. And if, and if I had the time to do it, I definitely could. Uh, but I'm going to get through them all. It is much, much appreciated. If you've sent me stuff and I haven't gotten back to you, uh, please be patient with me. Uh, you know, just charge it to me being busy and not to my heart, ignoring you. That is certainly not the case. Um, I'm just stacked up right now with things, but I'm going to get to you because uh, I see stuff come across my feed and I can just read the title and I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, that's going to be another one I'm going to have to do a podcast on. So I'm definitely going to get back uh, to everyone. Uh, it is much appreciated. And if you want something featured, now I can't promise you that I'm going to feature it all the time. It's depending on what it is. Um, you can either reach me in a couple ways. You can do it in the comment section, which a lot of you do. Or you could uh, send me a message on Instagram, on Facebook. 
um, or the Truth Uncompromised email account, which is truthuncompromised at gmail.com. Uh, I really, really appreciate the family listeners. You all are doing an amazing job. I am really seeing in the comment sections your level of scholarship. And when I tell you I'm so proud of you all, I'm very proud of you all. You're putting, I at this point, we're at the doctrine level worth of scholarship, okay? So you all can roll and go toe-to-toe with people definitely at the master's level. No no point about it, but at this point at the PhD level as well. So thank you all for your input. It is greatly appreciated. And thank you for the family listeners um, as well. It is appreciated. Now, um, on our Truth Uncompromised live show, we do that every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. So you can check us out uh, there as well. Now there we do a mixture of things. We do uh, spirituality. We may do uh, current events, controversial issues. And then um, we also do the historical. So, and we usually do that in a series that will last for a couple of months. Sometimes it may last the entire year. Uh, This year, the start of 2022, we're starting the series called Black Revolutionary Wars, plural. So that's what we're on right now, where we're going to go over the major wars around the world and how the participation of Black slash melanated people took place. So right now we're on the war of um, Britain and France fighting over territory in the Americas, all right? So hopefully you all can join us on Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So thank you all, family, for your time. It is much appreciated. You have a wonderful day on this Wednesday. Peace and love, fam.